Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Through each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone. And that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We make leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we are encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today's episode of the podcast will look a little different. This week, our president, Dr. Barry Creamer, hosts a Q&A with our students in which they get to ask him about anything they want. We hope you'll enjoy this unique opportunity as you get a glimpse into a conversation between our students and their president, Dr. Barry Creamer. Okay, hopefully I've turned on my mic, so uh, good, to, good to see y'all. I love y'all. Love, love being able to spend time with you. And uh, by the way, I just, uh, I'm, I, I'm awed at every, every worship time that we have together when we're singing together. The music is just amazing, and you guys are amazingly talented, all of y'all who lead music for us. Uh, so thank you for that. And my, for me, that's, uh, you know, I, I love music. I love all kinds of music, almost all kinds of music. There are a couple that are, are a strain for me. It's a reach for me, uh, but, I, but I love it all. And I love it so much. I am uh, proud of my kids who are talented musically. My wife is talented musically. I can make music, you know, like I can hit all the chords on a piano and all that stuff, but it's not music. I can make the sounds, but I can't make it music. You know what I mean? So I love it when I hear somebody who can actually make music. So I'm thankful to you guys and thankful to the others of you who lead for us. Um, it's just, it's, it's powerful. So I'm grateful for that. I'm going to read you a passage and then, uh, and just give you a devotional thought about it. And then uh, you can ask whatever you want. It doesn't have to be related to this. I just want to give you something to think about, uh, to carry out with you also. And uh, I'm bringing it up in the context of uh, not, not, not specifically limited to this context, but with this in mind. Uh, the idea of deconstruction, you know, the deconstruction of faith that a lot of people are, are doing right now. And I mean deconstruction in the, in the real sense, that, if, that, 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 when, that when people have lived out their faith to a certain point, they come to recognize that their faith uh, is not what they thought it was, that it, it was, that it had somehow become polluted, corrupted, or misshapen because of things that were included in it or built into it. Uh, that weren't really part of the bargain that we got from Christ. And, and, and when they recognize that, a lot of people will say, okay, well, I'm going to deconstruct my faith. But what they end up doing is just destroying their faith, not deconstructing. And then, because if you, if you just deconstruct your faith, you, you extract all the things from it that really were not pure, that were not part of what Christ wanted you to have. And you're left with something because we know the faith is real, if you do that legitimately, you'd be left with a genuine faith. You'd be left with a faith that you could live out, which can't be extracted completely from the presence of your culture or your community because we're not creatures who live in a sterile, you know, un, you know without community or without culture. But it could be a faith that is 
pure in your commitment to Christ within that culture, within that community. You understand what I'm saying? So ideally, that's, that's all deconstruction would do. It would, it would give you the severance from the impurities that you allowed to seep into your faith. And I don't mean that as in your culpability, but we are culpable for the things we do in our faith. Uh, that's what it would be. So that's what I mean by deconstruction when I say it. But, you know, what I'm seeing in a lot of, uh, of people is that they're brought to the point because of things that are going on in their family uh, or things that are going on in their personal life or confrontations that they have suddenly with things that they've always condemned that have now emerged in their own life uh, or uh, things that they've encountered in the way the faith is practiced by the people who are around them. Uh, that are just too much. The, the anomalies uh, mount up too much, and so they abandon their faith, and they walk away from it. And so I just want to get, so what I find most often in my, in, this is just anecdotally in my encounters with people who've done this, uh, is related to what comes up at the end of the book of James, so in James 5. And I've preached this passage, not to you guys, not in chapel or anything, but, uh, you know, I've, I've preached it uh, at other places. I love the book of James. So I'm not going to spend the whole time on it. I just want to read the passage at the very end of the book and point out the context of what James is saying about Elijah and his faith and what, it, what, what, what actually happened with Elijah. So if you remember the, the, where James is in the encounter, he's saying, so, and this is his concluding the book, and this is the point in the book. So, when you have someone who's sick in your congregation, then you should all pray for them, right? And uh, if somebody's doing well, then they should give God credit for it. But if somebody has, has become sick and they are in sin, so in other words, they've been disfellowshipped from the church in some way, and I do think he's describing church discipline in this, in this account. I think it's similar to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians when he says uh, if any, you know, that, that there are people who have sinned and continued in fellowship in the church, and the consequence is that they, that they fell sick or, or some even perished, you know, in, in discipline uh, under the Lord's hand. And so he said, instead, you should be confessing these sins to the Lord yourself and holding yourself accountable and so on. That's how Paul deals with it. So when James brings this up and says... If anyone is sick, you know, the prayer of faith, so this is what he says, if anyone's sick among you, let him call for the elders of the church. This is why they're calling for the elders of the church. It has to do with them being restored into the fellowship, which is what he's about to say. So let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. The prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if you have committed sins, he'll be forgiven. You see all the context there. This is the part, part I want to read. So confess your trespasses to one another and pray one for another so that you can be healed. That's the statement that immediately precedes what I want to focus on. So pray one for another so that you can be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he gives Elijah as the example. Elijah was a man whose passions were just like ours. So he wants to do the same thing you want to do that I'm already telling you not to do. So what you wanted to do was not to pray for the healing of this person, but instead you wanted to pray, you know, for the same thing Elijah wanted to pray for. Let's destroy him and be done with it, you know. This is, this is, this is how Elijah's thinking. And so he says, Elijah was a man with a passion like ours. And, and remember, if you're not convinced that that's what Elijah thought, he says it explicitly to the Lord. I'm the only one left. 
Nobody else worships you. Nobody else is faithful. And the Lord has to say to him, well, actually, there are a few others. So, you know, I've got a few others. So let's not give up on the entire nation yet. In fact, I'll, I'll just give somebody else your responsibilities and let them do it since you're not willing to do it anymore. But this is what he says. So the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So here's the example. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It didn't rain on the earth for three and, three and a half years. That's not the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man that he wants to get to. That's what Elijah, that's the part that was okay with Elijah. <laughs> let's, let's bring judgment on these people. We're good with that. And he prayed again. Why did he pray again? The Lord told him, come back, get on Mount Carmel, get the prophets together and have the contest and bring my people there and renew the covenant with them. And the baptismal waters of heaven will open on them and I'll anoint the land with my water and I'll baptize my people with my water again. And they will, just like when they crossed the Jordan River the first time, be renewed in their fellowship with me and I'll restore them. And Elijah is so put out by the event that restores this people to fellowship that he says to the Lord, you know, under that tree, juniper tree, whatever it is, it's too much. Take my life away. Not, I'm depressed. That's fine. He was depressed. If, if people talk about it that way, that's fine as an analogy, but that's not the point. He doesn't say, take my, do you remember what I'm talking about when Elijah runs down after Jezebel as he knows Jezebel seeking his life? And, you know, he's seen the greatest miracle since the parting of the Red Sea. And Elijah's response to it is, Lord, take my life. I'm not better than any of the other prophets. That's what he says. I'm not better than the other prophets. Meaning, your people, they just said, oh, Yahweh, he is our God, but they're not going to keep it. I'm not better than the other prophets. We've been telling them all along. They should be faithful, and they're not going to be faithful. These people are disgusting. I'm done with them. Take my life away. I'm done. I'm ready to go to heaven. I don't want to be down here anymore with these people. But the Lord had instructed him to pray, not only for the rain to stop so that Ahab would be cursed during the evil of his reign, but also that Elijah would pray again and that the Lord would bless the people and that they would be renewed and that he would have mercy. How do I know that that's the message he's communicating? First of all, I know the story from 1 Kings 17 and 18 and following. And if you read the story in its context, that's what happens. I mean, he's upset because the people have repented and God acts like they're going to mean it. And Elijah knows they're not going to. They're not going to live it out. He has a higher righteous standard than God. And I do mean that about us. We do that. This is what makes us Pharisees. Anyway, how do I know that? Because this is what he says. So he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit, which is not just him saying, oh, finally, God gave food to people. This is him saying God renewed the covenant with his people, the people who had been cursing him, the people who'd been chasing him, the people who were so adverse to God's will in their lives that for God to provide for Elijah, he sent Elijah to the seat of Baal worship, to Zarephath, outside of Sidon, where Jezebel came from so that he's provided for by that widow. You know what I'm talking about. How do I know this is what's going on? Because that's what he says in verse 19. Brothers, if one of you, and he's not just saying it to you personally, he's saying in your community, when someone planestes wanders away, which at the very beginning of the book, he had told them as individuals they needed to avoid, do not err, do not do this. 
wander away, but instead understand that the good gifts come from God, the temptations are inside of you, and so on. And the key temptation for them was to say, it's everybody else's fault and not mine, which is why he says, be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger and so on. Look in the mirror and see the righteousness of God and so on. That's all in chapter one. Here he says, brothers, if any one of you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, this is what Elijah had done with the people of Israel, then let him know that he who turned a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover up a multitude of sins. I'm just saying all of this to you for this reason. My encounter with people who are deconstructing their faith is that it's because they're so disgusted with the hypocrisy they've encountered in the people who are around them or in the culture that's around them or in the people who claim to be Christians and aren't living out what they believe their Christian faith should be. And I understand that. You know, we have a sense of wanting to point at people and say, you are not acceptable anymore. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to be a part of you anymore. And we lie down and we say to the Lord, just let me die. I'm leaving this behind. And I just want to remind you that the thing that makes you want to give up on other people's faith is what you have learned from the Lord the faith should look like. To abandon your faith because the faith that you've received from God makes you so frustrated at the way you've lived out your faith or your neighbors and community have lived out their faith, not only doesn't make sense rationally, but it should turn you instead of to anger or abandonment or deconstruction in the wrong sense that I was talking about a minute ago, it should turn you to contrition and humility on behalf of the people whose faith you can see is not right. That's what we're called to. That is the point of being a prophet. That's the point for Elijah. It wasn't that the rain would stop. It's that the rain would flow again and God could renew his covenant with his people. So our purpose isn't to find who's not living it out right and be able to abandon them. Our purpose is to serve them and like Elijah, to lay down our lives on their behalf if that's what it takes and trust that the Lord knows more about their heart, their faith, and where they'll end up than we do and why he's doing it. So I just want to encourage you, if you're, you know, if you're doubting or questioning, first of all, in your own heart, if you're looking at yourself and saying, how did it become this? What is it that you don't like about your faith? I can guarantee you the measure that you're using to criticize even your own faith is what you learned in the faith. So don't abandon the thing that's telling you that your faith isn't adequate. Instead, stick with the faith until it corrects you and brings you to the point of maturity that you ought to have. And the same with the people who are around you. Why do you think God gives them people who do know how to study scripture and do know the word of God? He doesn't give, it, give you to them so that they can support you, so that you'll have an income. He gives you to them because they're not what they should be and you can help them become that. So you'd be surprised how many people I talk to who wanna go into ministry, and it can be church or it can just be going to be a part of a church, a, a member of a congregation. But they're not willing to do it at a place that's not already fully mature and stable. That, that doesn't make any sense. That's, that's not, you know, that's, that's like a, a person who wants to be in law enforcement, but I'm not gonna go anywhere there's crime. What's the, what's the point? We don't really need you. So, okay. All right. 
Not encouraging you to commit crimes so that Brad can keep his job either. That's not, that's not the idea. Okay, so uh, uh, anybody have a, a, a question or a topic you'd like to discuss? Can be totally off that subject. I, I just wanted to mention that to you because it's been on my heart lately. Yes, sir. Uh, and I think Claire had a mic or somebody was going to have a mic. Claire, way back over here. Thank you very much. We need Jeopardy music in between. It's okay, Heath. That was a joke. Yes, thank you. He was on Uh, his way. Yes, sir. Sorry. (laughs) To give you some context, uh, about eight years ago, I was exiled from my own family because of differences in faith. Differences in faith? Differences in faith. And I used that as sort of a cop-out to no longer associate with them. Ah. But it's been years, and those uh, feelings of bitterness have passed. And I miss my family, so I wanted to ask, what do you think would be a good first step to try and reconcile with them? To try to reconcile with them, is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, well, first of all, just saying you want to reconcile with them, I think, is a a magnificent message. I I will say this, uh, I want to put it in context for others. I'm not saying this is true about you. Mm. But But in context for others, you know, part of reinserting yourself into relationships that you had that were broken, uh, it, because of some commitment that you made. So in this case, the faith to Christ, you know, a particular calling in faith. Uh, first of all, I, I think that's a beautiful idea. It's definitely what needs to happen. I mean, all of us know reconciliation is better. Peacemaking is what we're called to and so on like that. Uh, but on the first step, I do want to say uh, there, there are times when, like, let me put it in this, I'm going to step back one more step and add a different context for a second. There are times when people will say, uh, you, you know, you, I'm not saying it to me personally, but they're saying you need to go and work with this person to solve this problem. Mm -hmm. But they're saying it to someone who was abusive to that person. And they're saying you should go and help talk with them and help guide them back into the faith because you hurt their faith and you should whatever. And I, and I will often say to them, no, not you. You know, you ruled yourself out of the ability to do that ministry. So in the inverse of that, I want to say to you, I don't know what your relationship was like with your family. So I'm not saying it to you specifically, but to everybody. First step, let's make sure you're in a healthy enough place to go back into that setting and not find yourself in the same posture either of being abused or, or bullied or, or in conflict. And again, I'm not saying that happened to you. I don't know anything about that, so I'm not, I'm not saying that. But that does happen to a lot of people. And then they go back thinking, okay, now I'm just going to reconcile. But what they end up doing is actually just recreating the same structures they had in their relationship before. It, but instead, if you first built yourself, which I assume this is true about you, and I do assume it just based on having seen you over the years, you know, and, and just seeing how you carry yourself and stuff. And I don't know you, I don't know you in any detail at all, but just saying that, you know, if you've built yourself to a point where you can go in as a new person and say, I'm a different person and they can say all the same things they said before. And it's not going to mean the same thing to me because I, I can relate to them as a, as a different human being. Now, a person who's been changed by Christ and who has a stability, an ability to let my moderation be known to all men, including them, you know, from Philippians four, uh, then I think you're in a healthy position to go back and and do that. And sometimes, and I, and I, I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be a counselor here. I'm just trying to say biblically, I think the point is that before we know Christ, 
we're in a position where we are controlled by the cultural and familial and relational forces that are around us. When we come to know Christ, we realize that his proximity, you know, the ingeta term, the ingeta term, the he's at hand term, I think means more than just temporal proximity, you know, he's coming back in judgment. It definitely means that in most contexts. But there are contexts in which I think the point is, and Philippians 4 is one of them, where I think part of the point is that the Lord's proximity being right here, he's in the room, he's present, is what allows us to let our moderation be known to all men. Because we're so aware of God's presence now that we're not fully controlled by the relationships that do control most people without them even being aware of it. Instead, we're seeing all of those relationships and we're seeing Christ right here who sort of holds our hand and says, no, 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 let's not say that. <laughs> you know, let's respond a different way. In which case you're able to go back as an adult, but you have to go back, you know, you have to go back knowing that the pressures are going to be on them to treat you just like the person you used to be. And your ability not to be intransigent, not to be cold hearted, not to be rude or anything like that, but to be a, a person with a different answer this time and who's not threatened when you go back can make a huge difference. And, and that gives you the ability in patience to just show what it meant for your faith to be played out the way that it is and for them to gain and do a different respect for you. I, I, now, again, that may be way off base from what's actually going on in your life, but just generally that would be my thought. So any follow-up on that? Yes. I think over the years that I've been here, as well as the people that I've met, I have been encouraged, strengthened, and have tackled the issues of my past. I've rebuilt my relationship with my father, which was Beautiful. another obstacle in my life. And I think I'm ready. Beautiful. And I didn't hear the last phrase that you said. The sound up here <laughs> facing this direction is terrible. So I'm sorry, it's not you. Uh, but if you, I didn't hear your last phrase. I think I'm ready. Think you're ready. Okay, good. And you said you rebuilt your relationship with your father already. So praise the Lord for that. And I know for, for some people, they don't understand why that's important. It's like, I have a new family. I have a new life. Uh, it is important. I mean, it is part of who we are. Even when, even when you're told you're a new creation, just think about this. You know, we're, we're a new creation in Christ. You know, the second Corinthians five language, it's beautiful language. And it's true. Absolutely true. But being a new creation doesn't mean you're not the same person you were before you were recreated. You are a new person because you have the spirit of Christ in you and you have this transformation that took place. But this is partially metaphorical language to make the point that the person that you used to be who still exists with the same scars and the same baggage that you had before, but now you've been, you know, you've been treated, you've, you've, you've got this salve and, and you've been healed and you've been remade, but you still remember being three years old. It's not like your memories went away and that's the whole point of saying you were saved. It's not like the person you were when you were three is now going to go to hell and you don't care because you're a new person and you're getting to go to heaven that person is going to heaven, you know? So you're still the same person. So you, the idea that you have a relationship with your father and that that still means something important, I, I wish every believer would grasp because some don't and they don't get that that leaves a void for you. Obviously our heavenly father is there. Obviously we find our comfort in him, but the reality of that relationship is still there. So anyway, this is just my encouragement to you. Again, I'm in ignorance. There may be things I'm not aware of that I wish I were aware of in order to say this. I wouldn't say it just blankly to everybody, but it does sound like you're in a position where you could 
you know, give a go to reestablishing that relationship. And I think doing that without judgment, let me, find, let me share the least healthy way I know to do that. This is what you don't do or what I would encourage you not to do. What people have done to me though, many times. So I had a guy come to me after years I hadn't seen him. I never even thought about the guy at all. Uh, it was when I left the first church I was at uh, as a, as a, before I pastored. So I was like 18 years old when I was at that church. And then when I left and started a church and then pastored another church across town, apparently he got mad at me about something or another. I didn't even know about it. Man, probably 15 years later, he knocked on my front door at my house and said, hey, I, I need to come visit. And I remembered who he was from the church. I just didn't know him very well. And he spent 15 minutes apologizing to me for how angry he had been at me over the years, which he exposited in great detail. It was like, oh, I'm, I'm happy to know how angry you were with me. Thank you for sharing this. This is very helpful to me. Uh, I didn't say any of that, but I would say, you know, don't, don't, the reconciliation, I mean, it, it, it might be necessary for you to say, I've forgiven you. But very often when I hear people say to other people they've forgiven them, what they're really saying is, do you understand how much I had to forgive you for? And that's not the same thing as saying you're forgiving someone. Your forgiveness might just be your presence and your graciousness with them. You know what I mean? So that's just a, and I don't know, Steve, you may want to contribute something to that. If you want to say anything, feel free. You want to get him a mic just so uh, we can, thank you, Clay. Well, so anyway. I'm oh, very, wow. This is going to be a direct. Okay. No. Let's watch. No, I'm really proud of Miguel. So I think let's just give him a word uh, or a round of applause and appreciation. Um, I, I have seen you transform. And I would agree with everything that you've mentioned, Dr. Creamer. But I do think it would be important to find somebody to walk alongside. Ah, yeah. So you get connected with a mature trusted Christian um, person or maybe even a therapist or counselor. We know that that's your program and we're big believers in that to help you charter the waters, to prepare you on the front end as you go into these uncharted waters and then to support you and encourage you on the other side. Amen. So that'd be my recommendation. Amen. Perfect, Steve. Thank you very much. Dr. Hunter. Thank you. I went to Dr. Hunter one time when I was having a, a problem in my mind trying to resolve this emotional confrontation I'd been having. And uh, it was so fun but to watch him emerge. I needed the help. I really needed the help. So I just sat down with him and said, here's my, here's my situation. Help me, help me think through this. And watching him emerge as the person who was guiding me through that, it took about 30 seconds. I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I don't know if you remember this. It took about 30 seconds. He started re responding to me, sort of mirroring what I had told him and uh, how I had gotten there. And, and in about 30 seconds, I went, oh, okay, I get the point. <laughs> I get the point. Uh, I, can, I can think about this differently. And it really, the whole thing just went away, just like that. I'm saying that to you to make the point. Just like just now, you know, please, for heaven's sake, help us learn not to think we have to be the end all and be all of knowledge for people. Uh, I'm not that, and you're not ever going to be that, and none of us are going to be that in ourselves. But as 
Christian leaders, we've acted like that's what we have to be. And so I just, I just want you to think about how many Christian leaders you've heard over the last two years act as if they are experts on medical care, masking, or vaccinations, or on politics on either side. I mean, on either side. We're not experts on that. Why would we need to be that? Because very often you're going to be in a community that's going to look to you as the most mature Christian thinker. And they're going to think that you have all the answers, and one of the best answers you will have for them is the knowledge that you don't have all the answers. Uh, and that it's important for you to be able to say that. I don't, you know, give me a, let, let me look that up in Scripture and get back to you tomorrow. You know, let me add something to that. That's okay. All right. Now, by the time you're 60, you should know something. So know something, you know. Uh, okay, so anyway. Anybody else? We've got one down here and one over here and one right here. So take your pick, Claire. The pressure's on you. Pick, choose wisely. If the question's not good, Claire, I'm coming back to you. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Hello, Dr. Kramer. Uh, I am an international student from Costa Rica. And from where? Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Yes. Thank you. And coming here, I have found the topic of immigration very political. Yeah. And my question is, how should we approach as Christians this yeah. topic? Yeah, if I can, uh, did you say, uh, what was the last word you said? How should we approach the... This topic of this subject. immigration. Okay, thank you. Uh, I just want to make sure that's how you ask it. So uh, I, I do want to talk about immigration specifically in a second. On the way to immigration, let me just talk about political topics first. And it's taken me, you know, oh, since uh, 2016, I've had confrontations myself with my own background and the things I've done where I think, uh, believe sincerely that God has given me a genuine repentance about the attitude that I'd developed over years. My immediate reaction to that uh, was to just push back against everything I'd ever done. But it didn't take me long to figure out that we're supposed to be peacemakers and I've, you know, settled into a place where I'm not, where I get why on this side we have crazy people who are advocating for this, and on this side we have crazy people who are advocating for this, because we're, and they're against each other, because we're all in a position where we're afraid of one thing or another, and they're legitimate fears, but we're not all in a position where we have confidence that the Lord will actually take care of it, and so we're supposed to be this advocates that we actually trust the Lord, you know, in the process, and so I'm trying to be that person. That's what I'm trying to grow into being, so I'm just letting you know where I am kind of right now as I start this. So one of the questions that we always ask is, well, you know, if, we're, if we are trying to be that, then are there things you're not going to preach about anymore? Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big pro-life advocate. I always have been. So I'm, I've been, you know, anyway, I'm not, I won't go into all that right now, but I'm, I'm devastated at the toll of lives that have been lost uh, since 1972 or 73, but before that as well in the disregard that we have for human life, both in the womb and afterwards, you know, in, in every context. But the abortions are just, ah, and so I, I've always preached about that. And so the, you know, the question comes, oh, well, are you still going to preach about that? Well, of course I am. But what I learned, and I learned this 15 years ago, I learned that, you know, co-opting my sermon so that I would advocate for a political solution, for a particular political response public policy response, legal response, as if my pulpit was there to serve legislature or to serve a lawyer writing policy 
instead of serving the values that God instills in us that actually matter, which is the sanctity of that human life or the care that we have for the people who are around us or for the immigrant, the outsider, the person who shows up at our doorstep. So I don't know what policy we need at the border. Like, I have strong opinions about all this stuff. I mean, I've been, since I was in eighth grade, I was a public policy debater. I care about all that stuff a lot. And I am a free market advocate, man. I love free markets. And when I think about that and apply it to immigration, I'm like, what on, why on earth would we want to keep out people who can work and make things more affordable, and then when they can't work to make things more affordable, won't want to come because they can't make enough money to make it worthwhile, and then they stay where at their home, and then they come, you know, so, I mean, just the, let the economy drive who comes and goes. That's me politically, not me. I can't find that in the Bible. There's no advocacy in the Bible for free markets and certainly not any for communism. So I don't, I don't, I don't need to advocate for either of those from the pulpit, but I do need to say this. When strangers came to Abraham's door in the middle of the wilderness with no police force in sight. Now, admittedly, Abraham's a powerful man with a lot of people who work for him. So there's some power there. He doesn't, but these strangers, for all he knows, they are spies sent to find out how strong he is so that they can oppose him because he's already had the battle with all the kings in the region and they already know who he is. And he's out here in the middle of the man, you know, these plains. From his tent, he emerges and bows down before these strangers and says, come in, let me fix a meal for you. I will host you, I will take care of you. And it's mimicking that that Lot does that makes him the person who escaped Sodom and Gomorrah where they received the strangers and wanted to abuse them. It's not just that it was sexual abuse, it was sexual abuse for the same reason that they discounted the value of the strangers that were in their midst. Because they didn't threaten a lot with sexual abuse, but they threatened him because he was also an outsider. He was a sojourner. And that story's not just told once, it's told there, it's told in Judges 19, over and over again, the judgment of Sodom is the measure of everything. And the, and the judgment of Sodom is about how they treated strangers when they showed up at the door. When God says, I'm going to find out whether this is true about Sodom or not, he's not saying, I'm not aware of what they've been doing. He's saying, let's give them a test. We'll send strangers to them and see what they do with them. Those strangers show up for us and we're like... Yeah, they're going to take our jobs. They're going to take our money. We give a good Christian response. Shouldn't we be locking down our money and protecting it from those outsiders? That was sarcastic in case you're not attentive to things. Um, it's just inexcusable, you know. So good, you know, our, our, my, that doesn't mean my response is to say to my congregation, if I had a congregation, or to my orb of Christian friends. It doesn't mean my response should be to say to them, so you should have open borders. You know, that's not the response because I don't know what the best policy is at the border. And if you're not paying attention to the realities of the crisis that it is in the streets of El Paso or in the streets of Brownsville to have immigrants that they don't have enough resources to take care of, then you're not being fair to that community any more than you're being fair to New York or Massachusetts or Maryland when people are being shipped there and dropped on their doorstep so that we can play politics with the lives of people who are image bearers of God, you know? 
We're taking, it's just inconceivable that Christians would approve of abusing any people. So if you say, yeah, but there are a lot of criminals, the rate of criminality, and that's a broad generic term, and I've done the research on it, the rate of criminality among American citizens is higher than the rate of criminality among immigrants in the research that's done by the people who try to use criminality rates among immigrants to say we shouldn't let them in. One, so one in four immigrants, this is the common statistics that's used by Numbers USA, one in four immigrants is, has a criminal record in America. One in three Americans has the same kind of criminal record. One in three, yeah. So when you take the total number of immigrants, compare it with the number of pedophiles, for instance. There's a much lower rate of pedophilia among the immigrants than there is among Americans. That doesn't make pedophilia okay. It doesn't make crime okay. It doesn't mean immigrants who commit crimes shouldn't be punished for the crimes that they commit. But it does mean you don't need to judge immigrants on being immigrants. You should judge immigrants on being human beings and then figure out what we're supposed to do with them. I was very proud to hear this last Sunday that our church has made an agreement with our RST, is that what it's called? I, 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 maybe I've forgotten the name. I may, be, I may be saying some car model instead of the name of the organization, but it's, but it's an immigrant services uh, organization that works here in Dallas to, with the immigrants who end up on the streets of Dallas to figure out how to house them and clothe them and get them a job. And you have a certain amount of time, you know, to do all that before they start running into legal problems. And so I was proud that our church is doing that and looking forward to getting involved with that. So uh, my response is just look, treat people like human beings beings, you know, uh, this is, and care for them like they're human beings. I was talking to Bobby Worthington yesterday, and I don't think he's in here today, but uh, we were talking yesterday about it, and it's the same when he's dealing with the homeless. You just have to teach people not to say the homeless any more than you would, you know, say somebody is a, I don't know, whatever, characterize them as if that's who they are. This is a person without a home, but it's just a person without a home. And if you've ever sat down and talked to somebody, you know that if you deal with a person without a home who has a mental problem, it's the same as dealing with a person who has a home and has a mental problem, and then they're hungry and don't have anywhere to stay, you know? And so on, you get the idea. So the same with an immigrant. I mean, you know, a, a person who has crossed the border might be crossing it for good reasons or bad reasons, but they're a person who has the same needs as the person who lives in the house across the street from you who might've bought that for a good reason or a bad reason. You know, you don't, you don't have to research somebody's life to figure out that they bear the image of God and it's our responsibility to serve them and then let the Lord deal with all the other stuff that's going on in their life. So my, uh, I am, I, I'm, I, I'll just say it out flatly. I am ashamed of how many Christians have responded to immigration as if it is a threat because these people have come to take our stuff from us. I just, I, I'm like... Did we just not read the Sermon on the Mount? If they ask for this, give them more. If they slap you, turn the other cheek. If they, you know, they, there's nothing complicated about those passages. And I know they communicate much more than just passivity on our part. But it is clearly the case that selfishness isn't a justification for treating someone else poorly. And so that's the thing I would say. And again, that doesn't mean that you have to say, unless you adopt my solution for immigration crisis in America, then you can't be right with God. That's not true. There are all kinds of solutions to immigration legally, policy-wise, that would reduce the amount of suffering that's going on at the border. 
I'm, I, have a, I have a preference for what I'd like to see happen with that, but it's not biblical and it's not my role as a Christian leader to advocate for that. But the one thing I can say is when somebody's got a little kid and they're trying to find a place to sleep at night as a Christian, I should try to do something to help with that. You know, that's, that's the long and short of it. Does that help at all? Okay, thanks for asking. Oh yeah, uh, can we pass it over here? So we'll do, we've got two over here. And thank you for passing by Abel without even thinking about him. That was perfect. No, it was good. I like it that way. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Obviously. Yes, ma'am. So keeping um, in what you just talked about earlier before you started asking, before we started doing questions. Yes. um, I think that we're all guilty at some point of judging others. How do you position yourself to be a light to others without disrespecting your own healthy boundaries? Because you can, it's easy to separate yourself from people who choose to live a different lifestyle than you do. Sure. Um, But you want to love them. You want to support them. However, when you're close to them or in the same space with them, it becomes, it seems toxic. So how do you, how do you be a light? to those people without disrespecting your healthy boundaries. Yeah, and I, I'm, I'm going to do my best to answer this one briefly, and then we're going to, we'll, this will be the last one, so we'll do another song. Yeah, so get up. Yes, thank you. He's, he's, very, he's trying to be all subtle. Yeah, go up there, please. Thank you. No, this was a don't sit at the foot of the table. Come up hither and sit at the head of the table now, please. <laughs> yes, yes. So you can make noises while I'm speaking. Say so thank you. Maybe not quite that close. Uh, okay, so the last comment here is, uh, let me say on one side, I, I, you do, ha- there is a point at which you, I think, should be self-aware enough to know that you're not the person who can address some people, not you personally, all of us, you know, that there are some relationships that I have with people that are so difficult for me to manage, just like, just like Dr. Hunter was saying, it might require me to be with someone else to be able to engage that person, or it might be better for me just to pray and ask the Lord to engage that person separately from me because I create problems when I'm in that relationship. And I'm still that way, and I'm 59 years old. You know, I'm getting younger as I converse, right? I told you I was 60 a minute ago. I say I'm 60 normally so I can get over the hump, you know, in my own mind. Um, Anyway, uh, so let me say that on the, fr- on the front side. There, there, I think you should not feel, not, I don't mean the word feel. Uh, I think you should be aware, all of us should be aware that it is okay for us to step back sometimes and go, I want to do that. I'm not equipped to do that yet. You know, I can't, I, I can't manage that yet. But let me say on the other side, and this is, I think, the bigger part of the answer for me it has been. When I stopped, when I, you know, when I was, a long time ago, I was an independent Baptist, fundamental Baptist. It's a great, there's a great movement in that world that's, that's good. So, but for me, it was an encounter with a form of legalism that was real. It was helpful to me because it shook me up like joining the Marines, you know, gives you a sense of discipline that you didn't have. But it, it still hurts me, you know, it still affects me to be able to step out of that. And it made me very judgmental. So I was in a world where, you know, if you had hair like Jeremy's, uh, you were just, you know, I'm, you were 
Not okay. That was not okay. I'm not even remotely in that world, nor do I think it even remotely anymore. Jeremy knows that. And I think most of you know that I don't think that way anymore about that. But there are a bunch of other issues that still do reside in the depths of my heart, you know, that are not pure, you know, where the Lord would want them. And in those cases, and, and, and I can say there, this is true about some things like uh, if we were to talk about uh, homosexuality, for instance, a person who's committed to living a lifestyle of homosexuality, I think Scripture does uh, teach very specifically that the way we talk about traditional marriage and the relationship that sexuality should have in that marriage, that's the, the right way for sexuality to take place. And everything short of that sexually is a, at best a distraction and in reality a sin, you know. That's what I think the Bible teaches about it. And yet I have learned over 20 years, when I, when I am, I, my neighbors are homosexual, I have a daughter who's homosexual, I have friends who are homosexual, uh, I am around people who are homosexual on a regular basis, just like you guys are. So I have learned over the years that if instead of saying to myself, like I did when I was a young preacher, you need to get your hair cut, you know, you need to be a real man. And the Lord convicted me about that really early on, like, you know, I'm, I deal with you about things at a different timeline than I deal with other people about them. And it's really none of your business picking what you think someone else should change. Uh, stick to what I said in the Bible, communicate that to your church and let the Holy Spirit change them as they want to change. That's what I learned about hair back in the day when I was that dumb, right? But with, with something like this, where it's not just me being legalistic about something that I want to prefer, but something that I really believe is biblically taught, it took the Lord making me realize that not only has He changed things about me that are important to change, but there are also a bunch of things in my life that are never going to be perfect until I see Him face to face, you know? and. I am so grateful for the compassion that he has on me every day that it, it took me realizing that he's, he has exactly the same compassion on every person and that he, the way he describes himself, I'm not trying to break into another sermon, I promise I'll stop in just a second, but he himself was made perfect through sufferings, incomprehensible words, you know, except for the miracle of the incarnation and what it means. He was, you know, he was made perfect through sufferings so that he himself, you know, now we have him described to us as one who isn't untouched by the feeling of our infirmities, but was himself tempted in all the ways that we are. And in, and in this way, he becomes this perfect high priest, incomprehensible that he learned empathy in that. I, I'm not saying he didn't have empathy. I'm just saying the way Hebrews describes it, that's how we're supposed to approach him as one who we know has empathy with us. When I, for the first time, stepped into the shoes of someone who was living in a way that I would not approve of and still wouldn't approve of, and realized, like uh, one, one homosexual person that I know, was this was before marriage was legal, they just felt like they were never going to be able to have 
to love anyone for the rest of their life. They were going to be restricted in their relationships because of the people they were around. They were just never going to be accepted. They were either going to have to give up their family or they were going to have to give up having a loving relationship with somebody they cared about. That was their view of it. And when for the very first time, I finally thought to myself, even if they're wrong, and they are, even if they're wrong about what they want to do to establish that relationship, the pain they're experiencing is real. The loss they're experiencing is real. And for me to care more about being able to say that's wrong than being able to say, I care about you. And I understand that this is painful for you. I understand that. Changed my whole attitude about it. So that instead of walking up to people and trying to figure out what I can point out about them isn't visibly wrong about me anymore and therefore I'm allowed to condemn. And I became a little, just a tiny, tiny, tiny bit more like Christ who when people were hating him so much they crucified him, prayed for them then I think that was a better Christian approach. And that's what I've tried to become. And it's hard because, you know, there are just so many things to judge. Um, but all of those things are worse in me than in others. And I really have, I mean, a lot of people would think that I am a self-loathing person. And in one sense, I am. Uh, I, 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 I don't mind being in a position where I am... Like when, when other people criticize me, seriously, I'm like, oh, you have no idea how bad I am. You have no idea. And I don't mean that like I'm sneaking around doing something y'all should know about. I mean it like if any of us are honest about who we are before the Lord, we just would not have room to be pharisaical with the people around us. Uh, and that's what I pray for, you know, in us, that we just stop being Pharisees, you know. Start me. I mean, when Jesus had a, and so, I got to quit. Let's sing. Let's sing. Father, bless this group, and we are grateful for your patience with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell Chapel podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.